Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 tonight. We'll start there and, and uh, I want to share something with you that the Lord put on my heart this afternoon. Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to pull something out of context. I, I really don't like to do that too much, but whenever I do, I always make sure to tell you that that's what I'm doing so that you have an opportunity to, to see the, um, the entirety of the context in which it was written or intended to be, to be read. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 is talking about giving. It's talking about communicating to those who teach you and, and so forth to give as you have opportunity and such. But there's a principle here that, uh, that I want to pull out of uh, some of the verses that, uh, that Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write to the churches in Galatia that, um, that applies in a lot of different ways. Uh, let's start reading in verse 7. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul said, By the Holy Ghost, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In other words, you can't get by on things, claiming one thing or pretending one thing and doing another. God sees what's really going on. And whatever you're really doing, whatever you're sowing, is what you're going to reap. Now, like I said, the context of these verses is in giving. In other words, you can't claim to be a giver and not give. You can't claim to be a lover of God and not give and think that that God gives you credit for that some way or another. But the principle is, very simply, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In other words, our actions, the things that we do here on the earth, are not so much done or shouldn't be so much done because we're trying to make God happy. God's already happy with you because of what Jesus did. What Jesus did, he did for you. So we're not trying to make God happy. We're not trying to get stars in our crown or marks to our, our benefit or anything like that through the works that we do. But rather, in, uh, instead, what the Bible is saying is that our natural actions and the, the actions that we take here on this earth will either have one of two effects. It'll either be motivated by the flesh or this natural realm or our desires for this natural realm, which won't produce any lasting results. It may produce some short-term benefits for you, but it won't produce any lasting results. Or those things will be sown under the Spirit, which will reap eternal rewards for us. Now, again, he's talking about giving. The principle is whatever you sow will either will, uh, will bring a benefit, whether short-term, earthly, fleshly benefit, or long-term, spiritual, and eternal benefit. But then the next verse is what I really want you to see and what I want to talk about tonight, and that's verse 9. It says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, verse 9 is what I'm going to pull out of context. Be not weary in well-doing. Again, he's talking about giving. He's talking about the use of our money. He's talking about blessing those that have been a blessing to us and so forth. But there, you know as well as I do that Hebrews eleven six says, for without faith or without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, things that are considered to be well-doing deeds or deeds that produce or are classified as well-doing would also include deeds of faith, wouldn't they? In other words, if something is well-pleasing, it has to be a well-doing act. I know that's not good English, but I hope you see the point that I'm trying to make. In other words, anything that is done well, anything that is done for an eternal benefit, must be done of faith. The Bible goes so far as to say whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And I'm, I know in my own situation and, and in working with other people, dealing with other people for almost 30 years of pastoring now, I know that the devil uses time against you to try to undermine your faith. So I want to talk to you about not being weary in believing. Don't be weary in believing. Now, why should we not be weary in anything that we do that's considered to be well-doing or well-pleasing unto God? Well, the answer is very simply, 
Because in due season you shall reap if. Everybody say if. That means there's a condition on it. If we faint not. So what does that mean? That means the devil tries to use time to make us faint. The devil tries to use time to make us give up. Now turn back with me to the Old Testament. I will show you a couple of examples. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I want you to turn back with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 tells us of one of the appearances of, uh, of God. I believe it's Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus here on the earth. When he uh, appeared to, um, to Abraham to share with him about his plan, God's plan for his life and the things that are yet to come. And he's going to talk to him about this child of promise. You remember when God first appeared unto Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I believe it was. He told him if he would obey him, he would do certain things for him. He would bless him, which turned out to be a, a blessing of material provision. He would make his name great, which has to do with his family, his children being born, and that he would make him a blessing unto others, means an abundance so that he'd have plenty. Now, in Genesis chapter 18, actually, I'm going to, bear, I'm going to back up to Genesis chapter 17 to see the, the previous appearance, because these things work together hand in hand. Um. I'm just going to start in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1 of Genesis. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, when Abraham was, uh, was first visited by the Lord, he was 75 years old. So this is 24 years after the Lord first appeared to him and first promised to make his name great or to give him children. Now, 24 years later, he appears to him and talks about making him exceeding or multiplying him exceedingly. At this point in time, the only child that Abram has is the child from Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and that child is named Ishmael. At this point in time, Ishmael is probably in his early teens, somewhere around there. We don't know for sure, but he's probably 12, 13, maybe 14 years old, something like that. And that's the only child that he has. Now, that would qualify as a, as a rightful heir, but God's talking about something else. God has something else in mind. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you something. Have you ever waited for a promise to be fulfilled for 24 years? I'm working on it. Well, what do you do during those 24 years? Has every day been a, a rip-roaring day, excited about one more day to, to believe God for the promise? Many of those days has been a struggle. Many of those days for us have been a struggle fighting against worry, thoughts of doubt, and the circumstances that we see around us. And in many cases, the longer we go, the more unlikely the circumstances seem to, to lend themselves to God's promise being fulfilled. Isn't that true? It's certainly been true for me. So God's talking to him about making a covenant with him or fulfilling the covenant with him. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. I want you to notice, time has not changed God's intent or God's purpose. Not one little bit. He appeared to him first in Genesis chapter 12 and says, I'll make your name great. Now he's saying, I'll make you the father of many nations. Or I have made you the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more 
be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations come of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generation for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed forever. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan. This is a promised land that the children of Israel take in, uh, uh, with Joshua, under Joshua's leadership. For, the land, for all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said, no, I don't want to read the whole thing. Uh, God said, verse 15, God said unto Abraham, as for Sarah thy wife, Sarai thy wife, she, uh, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and I will give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations, kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. What has 24 years done to Abraham? Now, the margin of my Bible says there's a little number here in, in my Bible, number seven. And it takes me over to the center margin, and it says, or rejoiced. So you can read it one of two ways. Abraham either laughed or Abraham rejoiced. Well, since we don't know which one it is, I went back and I looked up the word. You know what the word means? It means he laughed. Now, it's easy to see, even if you didn't have a concordance, couldn't even look up the definition of the word. It's easy to see because if Abraham is rejoicing, he's not going to have any questions about this. He's going to be thanking and praising God for this. But notice what he does. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? May I translate this for you? Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, You've got to be kidding Now, here's the, here's the example of faith for us. Here's the great man of faith of the Old Testament, the man that God made a covenant with, that we're supposed to follow his faith. Folks, I want you to understand something. Even Abraham, who winds up being our example of faith, had off days. If God was the way that a lot of people think he is, a lot of faith people think that he is, if God was your confession monitor, the way that a lot of people try to be, God would have cut Abraham off right then and right there, and that would have been it. He'd have said, well, I guess I'll have to find somebody else to have a covenant with. But that's not what he did. God knows where you are. He knows what you're dealing with. And he has compassion on you like a father. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? Apparently he had enough good sense not to ask God that. And shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? And Abraham said unto God... Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In other words, well, we've already got a child. Let's just work with him. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with it, and with his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make thee fruitful and will multiply him. Make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant, verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. I want you to notice something, folks. And I've I've proved this out in a lot of ways. God doesn't have a problem showing you when. A lot of people don't know to ask when. A lot of people don't know how to believe for asking when. But one of the things that Jesus said in verse uh, John chapter 6, verse 23, he said, and in that day, talking about our day, the day after his resurrection, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. 
But whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, one translation, really the, the accurate, a more accurate translation is rather than ask me nothing is ask me no more questions. Jesus is saying, I'll have somebody available to you to answer your questions, but it won't be me after I'm raised from the dead. Job assignments change with the resurrection. Well, instead of asking Jesus questions, what they had done for three years, he's saying that in his name, we'd be able to ask the father directly. And that means God will answer any question except the ones that the Bible says he won't answer. And there's only one that I know of, and that's when Jesus is coming back. I think one of the reasons that the Bible tells us that Jesus doesn't even know the day or the time is that Jesus said, everything the Father shows me, I'll show you. So apparently God has to, this is such a, uh, an absolute relation, open relationship that we have with the Father through Jesus that God has to withhold the, the information about when Jesus is coming back because he would tell us. He's not holding back anything. Well, God won't hold back when the promise will be realized for you either. Now, the answer may not be what you like. I asked the Lord something, when is something going to happen? And he told me, and it was 12 years from that point in time. And I thought, you got to be kidding. 12 more years? I thought we were down to months. 12 years? Seriously? Well, now we are down to months. 12 years later. So the answer may not be what you like, but God will give you an answer. If you know how to pray and you know how to believe God for it. So he said, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time and the next year. And he left off talking with him and God went up from Abraham. Now, chapter 18, it says the Lord appears unto him again. Verse 1 appeared to him again in the, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the, t- he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And it tells us about he will... Um, um, well, later on in the chapter, it tells us about Solomon and Gomorrah and God revealing that to him. But one of the first things he talks about is in verse 9, beginning in verse 9, it said, and they, and they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And the Lord is speaking, and he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now, he's already said, we don't know how much time is between Genesis 17 when he said at this set time, uh, Isaac shall be born uh, at this set time in the next year. We don't know how long that is between there, but it seems to indicate to me, I'm guessing that it's about three months, assuming that she carried Isaac to full term, which is a nine-month pregnancy. Then it's got to be within the span of three months because Sarah is not in a position to, to uh, she's certainly not pregnant yet. And she's not even in a position spiritually to be pregnant. And this may be one of the reasons why God appeared the second time. He dealt with Abraham the first time. He has to deal with Sarah the second time. So he says, where is Sarah? And she said, Abraham answered, she's uh, in the tent. And Sarah heard it. He heard, Sarah, Sarah heard what is being said. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. So this is within the year that God had said in chapter 17 that Isaac would be born. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. Same word laughed is used over in chapter 17. It can also be translated rejoice, but you can tell from her attitude she's not rejoicing about anything. She's laughing. It's a laughter of disbelief. 
Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In other words, it's too late for me. Does God really expect me to believe that it's going to happen now, that it's impossible? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore, literally why, did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Now, if she's hearing what's going on, God just read her mail. And she knows it. She knows she just thought something or said something within herself, not out loud. And the Lord heard it just like she had spoken it out loud. So she knows from, for a fact. We don't have any record that the, uh, before this point in time that she's ever been involved in any way whatsoever in the Lord appearing unto Abraham or talking unto Abraham. So we have to assume that Abraham has just related the information that he's gotten from the Lord and, and the many times that the Lord has appeared to him up till now. But at this time, she's seeing and hearing what's going on for herself. So she has to be convinced of the supernatural nature of this visitation. At the very least, wouldn't you agree? And the Lord said unto Abram, Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I but surely bear a child which am too old? Now notice verse 14. Verse 14 is so, so key. And I believe it's the, it's the crux of the matter why the devil tries to use time against us to undermine our belief or our faith. Because this is, the, this is the issue, whether you've been believing for a minute or whether you've been believing for a millennium. This is the issue. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, folks, please realize this is Jesus asking this personally of Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a real question. Sarah's concern, Sarah's giving up. Abraham's giving up in chapter 17. Sarah's giving up. On the promise that Abraham has related to her that the Lord had said 24 years earlier. Almost 25 now. Has been undermined by the period of time. Now what does it mean for the devil to undermine your faith? You stop believing that God can do it. That's why it's so important not to be weary in your believing. Don't give up believing God can do it. Because that's what the devil always wants to attack. He'll always try to attack. And it's a subtle thing. He never shows up and says, Now today I'm going to instruct you and cause you to doubt that God can do anything. If he did that, we'd know to resist it. But it's a subtle thing. It's based on time. It's the thought that comes oh so quietly and oh so gently. What if it's going to happen? It would happen by now. Would have been in the tenth year anyway. Certainly by the 15th. But for goodness sakes, you know that it's not going to go for 24 years. There must have been something that you missed it on somewhere along the way. And that's what withheld the promise from being realized. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah, talking to Abraham, denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And Abraham said, no, you laughed. Notice Abraham's change of heart here. Abraham's in a different place than he was just in the last chapter. When Abraham laughed and God called him on that, he dealt with Abraham very specifically about here's the time. At this set time next year, she'll have a son. With Sarah, he dealt with her in a different way. He told her that he would, appoint, he would return and do it at the appointed time, which, which Abraham has already related to her. She knows that it's supposed to be a year from chapter 17 appearance. But God deals with her in a different way. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I don't know what you do with this or what you will do with this, but when the Lord revealed this to me many years ago, when I saw that this was the way that God dealt with Abraham and Sarah, and this was the means where he got them out of unbelief after 24 years back into faith in less than a year. When I saw this, I started using this as a matter of my daily meditation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I have to tell you, there are some things that I was looking at in my life where I had to really realize and admit to myself, you know, I have kind of given up on God being able to do this. And so there were some things I had to shore up because I realized it wasn't a conscious thing. It was something I'd never even vocalized. But there were some things in my attitude that I'd given up really thinking that God was able to do this. Now, when I first started believing, oh, man, I was charged up with faith and feelings. Bless God, this is going to be the way that it is. God's going to do this. This is going to be wonderful. God's plan is going to be realized. And then over time, it just started dribbling out, drop by drop by drop, to where when I got to the place where I asked myself, honestly, is anything too hard for the Lord? I said, well, you know, I kind of, quit, kind of gave up and quit believing for this. And I realized immediately that was an area I needed to shore up. I needed to plug that hole that was dripping out. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. But Abraham said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now what has happened in 24 years? Has God been unfaithful in any way whatsoever? Has God failed to, re, to, uh, to make good on any promise that, God, that he had made to him? Is there anything left off of God's original promise except the son? And even at that, Abraham has an opportunity to look at Sarah giving Hagar her handmaid unto him to have uh, Ishmael. And he could have justified himself by saying, well, you know, that, that's not the way I really planned for it to be. But God never said from the beginning that it would be Abraham and Sarah that had the child until chapter 17. It was just kind of implied and understood that since she's my wife, I had to have a child with her. But maybe this was God's plan all along for me to have Ishmael. Well, we know for, for a fact that that wasn't God's plan. Look at all the problems that's created in the world. The father of the Arab world and the enemies, of, the greatest enemies of Israel in the face of the earth. That was not God's plan. But you know how the devil works and you know how our minds work. There's all kinds of things and people at least that would have justified themselves saying, well, it's just kind of the way that it went. Everything seemed to fall in place and Sarah gave her to me. I, I just did what she told me to do. I'm, I'm guiltless in this, you know. Bless my heart. But it's the thing that turns them around. For Abraham is at this set time next year. For Sarah, it is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 9. Let me show you another example. Mark chapter 9. Let's start reading in verse, uh, verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when Jesus came to his disciples, by the way, he's just been on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, the other nine that were left, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question you with them? And one of the, the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. Now, I think they're all dumb, but I think this one specifically means he's keeping the boy from being able to talk. 
That was a joke. But I guess when you have to tell somebody, it's not a good one, right? And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Everybody say could not. Notice they were unable to do so. Now, stop and put yourself in the position of this father. He's just seen the disciples who the Bible clearly says Jesus has already given authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every sickness and every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. They have the authority. They're doing it. They're operating in this. They're used to it. And here's a situation where it didn't work. Now, I don't know how the father, what the father believed or why the father first came to Jesus. I don't know what he was thinking, but there's a couple of possibilities. For example, he could have come to Jesus because he heard Jesus was healing the sick and casting out devils. And so he said, if I can just get to Jesus, Jesus will take care of this thing and my boy will be delivered and, and everything will be great. And then he gets to where the disciples are, where Jesus is thought to be, and Jesus isn't there. But there are nine of them left. And either the disciples say, well, we don't have to wait for Jesus. He gave us authority to cast out evil spirits too. And the father could have accepted that and let them try. Or else the father has heard that the disciples are doing the same works as Jesus beforehand. And so he's on, he's on board with the disciples doing it. One way or the other, he's accepting of the disciples doing the work that he came for Jesus to do. Would you not agree? For me, the only difference is what degree of faith he would have in the disciples being able to do it. If he's not familiar with them doing that as a matter of of course because of the authority Jesus has delegated to them, then it would be something that he would just acquiesce to and say, well, okay, that's not really what I had in mind, but okay. Or on the other hand, if he's heard the disciples are doing the same works as Jesus, then he has faith in them because of what he's heard to be able to accomplish the mission. So for me, the only difference would be to what degree of faith he has. If he's heard of what they've done before, then he's going to have faith in it. If he hasn't heard them doing this, then he's going to have to take their word for it, which is faith on a lower level. You see where I'm coming from. So uh, it says that they tried and failed, and they could not. They couldn't do it. Now the father, whatever time he's been dealing with this thing and it says it's happened this has been the way that it's been with his child since he was a little boy so he's seen this year after year after year he's tried anything and everything i imagine i would if i was his father tried everything in the world to try to get him help without uh, without success and now here's one more failure added to the list of whatever he's tried up to this point now jesus comes on the scene After Jesus hears what's going on, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, Jesus immediately identifies what the problem is. Immediately, he he says to the father, the one of the multitude that's saying, my son, I brought my son to you, and, and the disciples tried, and they couldn't, they failed, and so forth. Jesus does not look to the disciples and say, how long is it going to be before you guys get this? which I think is the way a lot of people read this verse. But that's not what it says. It says he answers him. The faithless generation he's talking about is the generation of the father, not the disciples. He says to the father, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know I gave my disciples authority to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease. So if it's not working, the problem's not with the authority that I gave them. 
The problem is a lack of faith on the part of the receiver. He's talking to the Father, not the disciples. Now, I know Jesus is going to say that the disciples weren't able to make it work because of their lack of faith or their unbelief later on, but that's a totally different area, a totally different uh, matter than what Jesus is talking about now. He identifies the Father's unbelief as the problem. Now, the only difference between Jesus and the disciples in this case is that Jesus recognized what the problem was, and they did not. They, the disciples, did not. Now, let me ask you a question. If he's heard, if the father has heard of Jesus healing the sick, why is he a faithless man? Why is he without faith? He certainly loves his son. He's trying to help him. But notice the situation. Jesus said the problem is the lack of faith of the father. Well, the father has enough faith to bring him to Jesus. Doesn't he? Or else why'd he come? Not finding Jesus there, the disciples attempt to do the job, and it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Jesus said, because of the unbelief of the Father. Now, clearly, this guy loves his son. Clearly, he cares about his son. But it's not enough just to care about somebody. It's not enough to love your children. You've got to be in faith in the process. Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him, the son, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, the little boy saw him, straightway the spirit that was in this little boy tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Since he was a child. Now, can I ask you a question? Why does that matter? Does God's power only work on short-term events or short-term situations? Is Jesus say, is Jesus respond when the father says it's been this way since he was a little child, which indicates that's a long time ago. I mean, you wouldn't say that about a seven-year-old, would you? Oh, it's been this way since he was a child. Well, he's still a child. What does that tell me? Indicates that he's no longer a child. So that would indicate that it's a long time ago, wouldn't it? That's what it says to me. Now, what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, oh, I'm sorry, this only works if it hadn't been for uh, 10 years is the max. You know, if it's been this way for 10 years, then I'm sorry. There's just nothing I can do. Why does the time matter? What does the length of time have to do with anything? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with God's end. But it does have something to do with the Father's end. Folks, time is is the number one way that the devil will try to undermine your faith. The number one way. Now, let's talk about time for a minute. We'll go back and finish the story in just a second. Let's talk about time for a minute. Who controls time? Well, we're going to have to define what we mean. Who created time? That's an easy one. God's the one who created time. But who controls time? Does the devil control time? Does God control time? The devil does not control time, folks. The devil is not the one stopping things in your situation 99% of the time. There might be a few situations where we open the door to him through disobedience or whatever the case might be, some other area, some other aspect. But 99% of the time, the devil is not not controlling time in your situation. Now, time is under God's power. 
But in most situations, he lets the clock run. Just like in sporting events, you can call a timeout. And there were times where God in the Bible called timeout. When Joshua was fighting the Amalekites, he was running out of daylight. He commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. God called timeout through Joshua. And the sun and the moon stayed still. Gave Joshua enough daylight time to defeat the Amalekites. There was another time in Hezekiah's day where God turned back the clock 10 degrees just as a sign, just to prove to Hezekiah that his word was true. God called time out. There are other times where God has accelerated time. In many cases in Jesus' ministry, he accelerated time. Now remember Jesus said, and Jesus ought to know. Remember Jesus said, the whole of the kingdom of God is like planting a seed into the ground. What does that mean? Folks, this is something God's been dealing with me about here over the last month or so. And it's just opened my eyes to a lot of things. And that is, for the kingdom of God to be like planting a seed in the ground, it means very simply this. There are some things, some aspects of God's kingdom, which are spiritual, that time does not have any bearing on. Salvation is one of those. You don't have to pray and then wait for salvation to come. Because it's a spiritual event, it's a spiritual occurrence, there is no interaction or or, uh, involvement or connection with the natural realm between your spirit making Jesus the Lord of his life, your lives, and any natural circumstance whatsoever. You choose when you want to. Spiritual things are instant because there is no time in the spirit. There's no time in heaven. But everything else, every other aspect of the kingdom of God that has to do with, and not everything does, most do, but every other aspect of the kingdom of God that has to do with the natural realm, like healing, like believing God for finances, is like planting a seed in the ground. That means every other aspect of the kingdom of God that pertains to this natural realm. Healing is a part of the physical body. It's a change in the physical body. Prosperity brings finances in from this natural realm. That means those things are subject to time and space and the laws that govern it. Now, there are times, there were times in Jesus' ministry and there are times in the church, both old, uh, early days of the church and present times, where things happen instantly. What is that? That's God speeding up or accelerating the growth of the seed. F.F. Bosworth said, and it was really interesting, interesting to me that he would say this. He said, sometimes our instant healings are a curse rather than a blessing. Because they cause an expectation or a thought, an idea in the minds of people that that's the way that it's always supposed to work. If the power of God's in operation, that it'll always be instant. And folks, I can't tell you how many letters I get from people that watch TV, watch us on TV, and say, uh, with this question, they'll say something like, how come... You talk about believing God and standing in faith for healing when Jesus healed everybody instantly. Well, number one, he didn't. In most cases, he did. Most of the cases we have record of, he did. And I would imagine that most of the instant healings are the ones that we have record of. You know as well as I do that if we said, tell us about every miracle that you know about or every supernatural event that took place, you'd tell us about the most spectacular ones because those are the ones that stand out in your mind. But that doesn't mean that everybody Jesus ministered to was healed instantly. And it doesn't mean that there was a greater display of power in the cases of instant healing than in the times where people were healed as they went. It's still a supernatural occurrence. Wouldn't you agree? 
So there are times where God accelerates time. There are times where he, when he stops it, calls a timeout. There are times where he accelerates it. But in most cases, the majority of the time, he lets the clock run. And God's not worried about the clock running. He's not worried about running out of time. He knows the power of his word. That's the part that we have trouble with. That's why time can become your enemy if you don't know how to deal with it. Well, how are we supposed to deal with it? Well, what did James say? James said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. It means trouble, adversity. Now, what is the cause of most of our trouble and adversity? What is the reason why most of us find ourselves in trials, in trouble, and in adversity? Well, I know for me it's because what I'm believing for hadn't yet come to pass. Because as soon as I see a problem, I pray and you apply the word to it. Well, if everything that we applied the word to worked instantly, then there'd never be any delay. You'd never find yourself in any trouble. You'd be praying immediately and getting immediate results. So anytime we find ourselves in tests, trials, and afflictions and trouble, it means what uh, I'm assuming you're acting on the word. For the person that does act on the word and apply the word in every situation... For the doer of the word, that means what he's believing for or what he's prayed about hasn't yet come to pass in reality. We're in this natural realm. It's real, but it's not seen. It's not visible. So what are we to do? Well, the Bible says count it all joy. That's not a real fun thing. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say worry about how long it's going to be. It says count it all joy. How do we do that? Knowing this. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, it takes the seed a while to grow. It takes a seed a while to grow. Now, the only reason that we'd be in test trials and afflictions would be in things pertaining to this natural realms. Things that we're looking for from God, things that we're looking to receive from God that intersect or connect with this natural realm, which take time. Is this making any sense to anybody? So what are we to do? Count it all joy knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Patience has to do with time. It has to do with an attitude of expectancy, a constancy while things delay. But let patience have a perfect word, James goes on to say, that you may be perfect and entire, complete, wanting or lacking nothing in other words he says he's saying don't let time get you down keep the right attitude even during the what looks like a delay because the seed always produces the seed always produces now let's don't leave the father in the mess that he's in notice back in mark chapter 9 mark chapter 9 Verse 21 is the last one we read. Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, since he was a child. And then he gives some additional explanation. He said, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, here's the real issue. Here's the crux of the matter. Here's what the devil tries to use time to accomplish, to make you question if God can change it. To make you question if God's word, God's power, God's ability can still make a change. Or if God is even willing to use his ability or his power on your behalf. And that's where the guy is. He came in faith, some degree of faith, to get Jesus to help him. After the disciples try and fail, the circumstances are such that the guy is now at the place saying, if you can do anything. 
Not if the disciples can do anything. Not why didn't the disciples make it work. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, Jesus, rather than running to him and say, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to doubt the power of God. I don't want you to doubt that I'm the son of God. Instead, Jesus turns it right back on him. Jesus answers and said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, the possibility comes down to faith. There's a story in Matthew chapter 9, about verse 28, somewhere around there, where there were two blind men that heard Jesus coming down the road. And they started crying out saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus passes them by and goes into the house. And it says, when he went to the house, the two blind men came to him and said, Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, Lord, that we might receive our sight. And Jesus asked them this. The only time that I can find in the scriptures, in the examples of Jesus' healing ministry, Jesus asked the guy a question, the two guys a question. He said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Isn't that a strange question? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Why would he ask that? They answer quickly, immediately. There doesn't seem to be any delay. They answer and say, yeah, Lord, we believe. And Jesus lays hands on them and says, according to your faith, then be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. Why would Jesus ask, do you believe I can? If they didn't believe he could, why are they crying out, have mercy on us? Why, when they find out it's Jesus, who they've heard about, Heard about healing the sick, maybe even healing other blind people and so forth. Why would they cry out and say, Jesus, have mercy on us if they didn't already believe? Folks, it's not a given that somebody that exercises faith believes that God can do what what they're asking him to do. That should be something we ask ourselves regularly. That should be something we examine ourselves on regularly. Do you believe God is able to do it? If you've been waiting, if you've been, if you're, Faith, what you put your faith on to receive, whether it be healing or whatever else, if it's been delayed, you need to examine yourself and ask yourself, do I believe God can do this? Have I let the devil undermine my faith in God's ability? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, Lord, for instant healings, but also we thank you for the privilege to stand in faith, to expect your word to come to pass on our behalf. Whether it come instantly or whether it's delayed, Father, we know that your word is true. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to stand upon your word in Jesus' name. Amen.